Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ayanna Lewis, your co-host for our podcast on increasing diversity in IBD trials. In this six-part series, my co-host, Dr. Aaron Forster, and I will speak with a variety of stakeholders about diversity in the clinical trials workforce and in clinical study participation. On today's episode, we're going to explore how artificial intelligence may help address challenges with participant recruitment for clinical trials. Our guest is Ryan Stidham, an associate professor at the University of Michigan, holding appointments in the departments of medicine and computational medicine. He is a medical data scientist caring exclusively for patients with inflammatory bowel disease at the University of Michigan Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program. Dr. Stidham's research program focuses on the development and testing of new technologies for disease assessment and decision-making in gastroenterology and general medicine. He has formal technical training related to data analytics, computer science, signals analysis, imaging, as well as clinical trial design. His work is funded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, the Leona Helmsley Charitable Trust, and several major industry-sponsored collaborations in the data science space. Dr. Stidham, thank you for joining us today. Could I ask you to tell us a little bit about how you became interested in gastroenterology and IBD specifically? Sure. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. And this is fun. How'd I get into GI and IBD? It's actually not that long of a story, but there is a story. Nothing bad happened, but when I was in medical school, I wasn't really that interested in anything. There were no problems. School was fine. Life was good. I just wasn't finding myself kind of connected to anything very much. And so we all met with the dean where I, where I went to medical school, the dean of students, who helped us make our schedules for our clerkships. And that would kind of skew us more towards surgery if we felt we were moving towards a surgical career or medicine, if that was our path. And I told him, just go ahead and put me anywhere. I don't really have a strong feeling one way or the other. Wherever you have some gaps, I'm happy to fill in. And he was nice enough to spend some time with me and kind of drill into that. And I said, you know, I just wasn't feeling connected to very much. And he asked me, well, what courses in, in the first two years of medical school were you interested in the most? And I told him immunology. Hmm. I liked immunology because it was mechanical. It seemed to be more predictable. And there was a lot of clinical impact resulting directly from these scientific discoveries. And you could read about basic science studies of how IL-1 and IL-6 are involved in mucosal immunology, or perhaps even TNF or the IL-12 pathway. Back at the time I was in medical school, everyone was interested in IL-5 and allergic disease. And I thought it was really interesting how fast that could translate into something that was clinically actionable and mattered for a patient. And so I didn't know who Sheila Crow was, but he put me in Dr. Sheila Crow's lab, who at the time was at University of Virginia. And I didn't know what a, I mean, I knew what a gastroenterologist was, but I didn't really have my heart set on gastroenterology, but she kind of just kindly 
I'm not really sure why she was so nice to me, but she just took me under her wing and said, you know, here's our lab. At the time, she was looking at H. pylori and celiac disease and these inflammatory cytokines and, and looking for associative pathways. And so I spent time in her lab. I was pretty useless, to be honest, and wasn't really sure what I was doing there, but I was really interested. And she let me come with her to clinic and endoscopy. And she had this very busy but interesting academic life. She was always going to give some lecture or work with some students or go to her lab or go to endoscopy or talk on the phone with the patient. And that was it. And I just said, I like this. I'm going to do this. And so I went into gastroenterology and kind of found a home in IBD. And I've been lucky enough to be here ever since. So I haven't lost my job yet. And it's been a great ride. And I encourage everyone else to, to jump on the IBD wagon. Well, we're all very happy that you decided to do gastroenterology also because of all of the wonderful things you've contributed. So thank you for that. So everyone's talking about artificial intelligence now. Are there any AI-driven technologies that are currently being used in the IBD space? And what applications are there for AI in IBD that are ready to be or close to ready to being able to use? Yeah. Artificial intelligence sure is popular. And I think it's popular because in all domains of our lives, outside of medicine, outside of our professional clinical responsibilities, we're seeing AI do things everywhere. Artificial intelligence is doing complicated things like driving our cars. Maybe not as well as we would like, but it's certainly doing things that we never thought a machine could do. But it's also doing very simple things where maybe it's not glamorous, but we're all busy, right? And I have a little robot that vacuums my house because otherwise I'm a complete slob and it's very embarrassing. But that simple tool saves me so much time and it takes all kinds of artificial intelligence technology to make that simple tool like a robot that just cleans my floors work reliably and safely and effectively to the point where I don't think about it. I just run my Roomba and sometimes it sucks up some cord to a lamp or something or a sock, but overall it does a great job. So there's this whole wide spectrum outside of medicine of what AI is doing. And we're just amazed by its capabilities. But I think some of the most concrete things that AI is doing right now and over the next five years or so are really taking tasks that are maybe not the most complicated, but they take time from us. They take time from perhaps our clinical day. And if we can offload those laborious tasks I don't want to do it. My nurse doesn't want to do it. My medical assistant doesn't want to do it. My schedulers and administrators of our health enterprise don't want to do it, but someone has to do it. If we can find machines or other ways to do this in the background and we can rely on them, that's transformative. And so I think that that concept is what we're looking at in medicine at large, which includes gastroenterology and IBD. In the short term, we are seeing these extremely sophisticated methodologies being applied to very specific problems that we have, time-consuming tasks that are not really replacing what anyone does, but maybe can act as an assistant for the difficult parts of our job that we just have to do. So in the big picture, I think that's kind of where 
AI and related technologies are really focused to be involved over the next five to 10 years or so. Great. Are there anything, aren't any tasks in particular you think that AI could take over in the IBD space? Yeah. Yeah. So moving down from like 30,000 feet to sea level, as it were, and like where we're at, absolutely. And there are some technologies that I think are ready today. So most of these have to do with image analysis and automated image interpretation, specifically for us as gastroenterologists in the endoscopy space. So just about every gastroenterologist is familiar with the automated polyp detection tools. And there's a number of them that are now available. I have no relationships with Medtronic, but they have one called GI Genius, which does real-time polyp detection to help watch the endoscopy and kind of like another set of eyes, find polyps. Other companies have similar products that are that are being made available. But specific to IBD, that same kind of concept of computer vision or machines that are able to understand very specific parts of imaging, or if they're asked very specific questions about an image, they can answer it. We're seeing that for IBD, principally in central reading. So when we think about IBD disease assessment, we still completely rely on endoscopy, and I don't really see that changing. But as you know, one of the limitations is that endoscopic grading of ulcerative colitis, and especially Crohn's disease, it has some limitations. There can be some bias in terms of your scoring. Frankly, there can be some error. And in many of the cases, the variability between different reviewers, even if they're experts, isn't because one knows more than the other. It's, it might just be because they have slightly different perspectives. Maybe they're including some patient information to kind of change their perception. But there's been this idea that endoscopic gradient of disease activity is so important on endoscopy. It needs to be objective, reproducible, perfect every time for every patient, no matter who they are or where they are, or if they're seen at some big center of excellence, or if they're being seen by their small group of GIs who are the team that takes care of their entire area. So this is something where artificial intelligence excels. And so building on that technology that we've seen for polyp detection, we now have similar technologies for central reading. We used to have central reading done and still do by human experts. So if it's a clinical trial and you've got lots and lots of money from a pharmaceutical company, they're able to afford for humans to kind of take the recordings of the endoscopy. Multiple reviewers will, will review them and you can have some kind of less biased, more objective score. But what machines can do is replicate that entire process and do it quickly, cheaply, almost immediately, and also do it anywhere. You don't have to wait for Dr. Bruce Sands or Marla Dubinsky or Dr. Hanauer or Sarah Hoist or whatever central readers. You don't have to wait for them to be available. No matter where you are, you can now have that objective scoring right there. So one, those types of technologies are actually available right now. And there's several startups that are making those technologies available to large health systems and even small practices. And so while the initial applications are this clinical trial space of objective scoring, that type of technology will enable automated endoscopic scoring to be done for all patients, even in routine care. And it can just be done passively in the background. As you do the endoscopy, the machine is watching it. The video gets recorded. It gets analyzed. And the score just gets pushed right to your EMR, 
like a lab or any other metric. So again, that's not earth shattering. Humans can do that. In fact, arguably humans can probably do it a little bit better. But if we can make it fast, easy, cheap, and available to anyone, anywhere, that's an advance. So that's one of several technologies and probably the one that we're going to see the soonest kind of touch us in the IBD space. Excellent. I wanted to challenge you a little bit on your comment about the objectivity of AI, because there have been some questions that have come up about bias in AI, particularly as it relates to race. How do you think that we can truly get objective with AI when it's trained on what humans do? Right. So we can't. And your question is not only totally correct, but I have to say often this question of bias in our data, in particular when it comes to socioeconomic or racial or other kind of types of patient population diversity, it's often an afterthought. After the data set is made, we kind of talk about the, the bias in it. But that has to be considered upfront. In the beginning of the architecture of these systems, that needs to be considered deliberately and purposefully so that we can try to minimize this. The way that machines are currently trained, and in the image analysis space, it's often with something called a convolutional neural network, or in some cases, random forest models. It doesn't know what right and wrong is. It doesn't know what severe ulcerative colitis really is. All it knows is the ground truth that's been given by the experts, whoever those experts are. So all of these models with the current architecture that we use to build them will incorporate all of the biases of their trainers. Some of those biases may be known. Many of them may be unknown. And when it comes in particular, you know, in consideration of socioeconomic biases and racial biases, often these can be very, very hard to detect. Because even when you think you're accounting for that, or even when you're looking at a whole population, so say in a particular geographic area, our Caucasian population is 65%, our African-American population is 29%, our Latino population is 7%. Even if you construct your population to match those local demographic features, there are still all kinds of ways where there can be bias in the different data because of the way that those patients enter the system and differences in who was seen and who was not seen, who has images collected and who doesn't have images collected. So even if your population kind of statistics are similar, you can still have bias. So the way that we train systems now will incorporate all of the human biases we have. It doesn't have any intelligence to get over that. They're just replicating us. So you're getting a cheap copy of, say, Adam Chaffetz when you have like a central reading machine that's based on him, but it's very cheap and can be done anywhere. Right. It seems like what you might be suggesting is that in order to have an AI that's trained, that will reflect less bias, you need to have less bias in the group of people who are training the AI. And that might be something to think about as this rolls out in medicine, because I think AI really is the future. And we have to be thinking about that and, and how we roll things out. So thank you for that. So I'll shift gears a little bit and, and let's talk about ChatGBT. Okay. Mm, Over okay. the last few months, ChatGPT has been one of the big things in AI that's just kind of come out of nowhere and it's being rapidly adopted. Can you explain what ChatGPT is and how it can be helpful? This is a big one. ChatGPT 
is a large language model, an LLM. And it's within the domain of what's called natural language processing or computational linguistics, which more or less are teaching machines how to read. So machines can identify words. They can then look up their definitions. That's not the problem. The problem is reading comprehension is quite complicated because language itself is complicated. The structure of language, if you think about going back to grammar school and learning about the different parts of speech, you know, past participles and various conjunctions and indefinite articles. And you have to understand how to put all those together to understand the context of language. This is an incredibly sophisticated problem. And natural language processing has been a field in computer science for decades. But it's just very difficult, mainly because human language is messy and and quite disorganized. Our brains are able to learn how to interpret it, but it's challenging for machines. So there's a variety of different tools in the natural language processing space that have, that have aimed to do this. And the large language models that ChatGPT is based on is one of the newest innovations over the last 10 years or so that, that have allowed this to be possible. So what the large language models do, how they work, is they don't really have to be trained. So as opposed to having some kind of ground truth where an expert looks at a document and tells you about it, these large language models just pull down documents from whatever source they have. In the case of OpenAI's ChatGPT and other large language models, it pulls directly from the internet and other document sources. And what it does is it will take a sentence like, Ryan really likes chocolate ice cream, period. And what it will do is it will remove one or two words from that sentence, and it will try to predict what those words should be. And it does that kind of process multiple, multiple times, trillions and trillions of times on lots of sentences and documents with different parts that have been held out. And so in that way, it doesn't really understand who I am or what chocolate is or what even ice cream is. It can just predict what's likely to come next, what string of words is likely to come next. So the technology behind ChatGPT has actually been in development for well over 10 years or so. They suddenly released it and it's made an enormous splash as it should because it is revolutionary. But it's actually based on decades of technology development. Within the medical field, there's a system called BERT, B-E-R-T, which is kind of a predecessor to the OpenAI's ChatGPT model. The difference is there's just an order of magnitude more of training data and computation that that has become possible with advances in computer hardware. So that's kind of what ChatGPT is. That's as simple as it is. It's kind of just predicting what, what string of words can come next, but just at so many orders of magnitude, you have amazing results with it. So there's a lot more we could talk about with this, but that's what it is. And I am excited. I'm afraid. I have a lot of feelings and emotions about this. And this is like the space that I'm in. Nothing has kept me up at night in a long, long, long time. And at the risk of sounding dramatic, there is no drama in this at all. This technology is going to transform our whole world, our entire world. And I don't know what to think about that. Hmm. Are there certain things that you're afraid may, become, may come from the access to similar technologies? And I have lots of fears. In the medical space? 
I have lots of fears. Yeah. So let's talk about the medical space. So fears are easy to talk about, right? And they're emotional and, and all that, but I'll try to restrain myself because there's also an enormous amount of possibility here. I think the theme I would say to kind of manage the fears is we need to keep tight control of this. My main fear of ChatGPT and similar technologies is how convincing it is. Right. So go on chat. I go ahead and go on ChatGPT now, or anyone listening can go on and just type in, "Hi, I've got Crohn's, and I'm on Inflectra, and I'm doing okay, but should I be on something else?" Just type that in and see what happens. And the conversation that you can have with these LLMs is so convincing that you would believe, because of the how convincing the output is, that it knows what it's talking about. But it doesn't know what it's talking about. It has no idea what tofacitinib or vetalizumab are. The answers are surprisingly convincing, though. And I have to say, credit where credit's due, the output is about 80 90% there. I've spent more time than I'm willing to admit because they probably say, well, why weren't you in clinic? But I don't know. Let's just say dozens of hours. <laughs> and it's really good. But on one hand, I want to criticize it to say, with medical information, it doesn't know what it's talking about. It's just doing pattern matching. But then I ask myself philosophically, well, aren't I just doing pattern matching? Don't I just, wasn't when I was a fellow, wasn't I just listening to Peter Higgins and Ellen Zimmerman and my colleagues listening to them and then regurgitating it? Am I much different than ChatGPT? I don't know. But the one fear ultimately has to do with it's so convincing you can believe it even if that belief is not justified because the machine doesn't really know. So another fear that I would bring up about ChatGPT, and we can talk about, we should talk about the good stuff as well. Imagine, imagine over the next five years, everyone will be doing clinical studies and things with ChatGPT. And there'll be a hundred papers that come out that more or less say ChatGPT had equal performance for advising patients for chronic idiopathic constipation management. ChatGPT matched advice from a behavioral therapist for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. ChatGPT's performance matched a seasoned registered dietitian for administering instructions on low FODMAP. And it does. But then if I'm Medicare and Medicaid, or I'm one of the payers or benefit managers, I might say, okay, well, ChatGPT is cheap. So if it's as good, I don't see a problem with our patients under our plan can see ChatGPT as much as they want. And you can have 60 minutes with your human healthcare provider a year. You can imagine that happening and people will say it won't, but I don't think that's far. And I think it's going to be tied to things like socioeconomic status. I think it's going to be tied to things. If you have resources, right. frankly, if you have money, you're going to want to see the human. You're going to want to see the experienced physician who understands you and where you're coming from and all the contextual awareness that ChatGPT and similar technologies don't have. And you're just going to pay out of pocket. And you're like, it's expensive, but it's worth it to me. But if you don't have those resources, I fear that you could be stuck with this machine that's okay, but is not really giving the best healthcare possible. And so it's not that ChatGPT is good. It's that as opposed to aiding 
in healthcare, it's going to be used to replace certain people. And that's before you talk about jobs and everything else. That's a whole other conversation. Right, right. Shouldn't touch on that. That gets too scary. But in terms of like creating worsening separations between the quality of care that our under-resourced Americans experience versus those who do have resources, it could accelerate that. So I can see, I see exactly where you're going with that. I'm, I'm a little scared now myself. It could widen the divide even more right. when we're all trying to close that divide. Right, exactly. So I guess we should talk a little bit about what you think might be positive that chat GPT can do in the medical space, just to provide a counterpoint. Oh, there's so much it can do. So long as we keep, I gave a talk recently and it was, the title was something like, you know, keep your hands on the wheel. And the idea is if we can control this wild animal, chat GPT, man, it could be amazing. So here's the fantasy that I have. The fantasy that I have is I love every one of my patients. A few of them are a little like, you know, difficult children sometimes. And I'm just like, I love you, but this is getting challenging, but it's a joy to practice medicine. It's an absolute joy. I hate the in-baskets and in-boxes and constant communication. I hate it so much. I would exchange so much to not have to do that. I'm like, I'll, I'll work on Saturdays and Sundays if you can like find a way to take this out of my life. This is something where I think there will be, with certainty, actionable tools using something like a chat GPT or natural language processing to try to ad address those in-basket issues. So you imagine chat GPT becomes a type of assistant for you. And so it's reading your in-basket in messages. It's reading the messages and the needs from the patients. It's looking at administrative needs. It's looking at requests for prior authorizations. And it's just going to draft it. And you can just roll in at the end of the day and it says, hey, I already talked to the patient. You know, they were asking for a refill. They said they had a rash. I told them that rash, you know, probably isn't drug related, but want to check with you. And you'll get a reply from ChatGPT, more or less in a conversational tone like that, but that they can manage these things. There's already examples of ChatGPT writing insurance prior authorization letters. These laborious tasks that we still have to do, but we don't want to. And so I, I often try to give them to some kind of like, dele like delegate them to somebody else and they try to delegate to somebody else because no one wants to do this. But I think that there could be some amazing things that it could do for those, let's call them like more basic tasks, medication refills, Say you want to do a disease assessment for the patient as opposed to asking my nurse to call the patient and talk to them and get that. I think that the chat GPT could do a great job. And I think that the patients would be fine with that. And then the chat GPT could then cross-reference their result with their prior results and look at their EHR data. And it can do these things. And then just say, looks like nothing's really changed very much. Seems fine to me. Typically, Ryan, you wouldn't make any changes here. Right. I mean, can you imagine in terms of the amount of time that we get back as physicians in terms of being able to see patients? That, I mean, it really could be revolutionary. I think you're absolutely right. That'll be the exchange, right? So there'll be a trade. So we're going to work more, but it's going to be okay because I think that everyone's going, I think that these tools and these machines, much like the robot vacuum that cleans my house, I can clean my house. I just would rather do, do other things. We're going to have the machines help us with some of these machine level things, all the parts of our job that are mechanical. ChatGPT is going to do it. And then we're going to sit with the patient. We're going to have more time with the patient. Because even if the ChatGPT can 
figure out, well, probabilistically, the right next step here is to use vedolizumab for these reasons. Fine. But that's only one part of it. To get the patient to understand that, to walk them through that process of starting a new medication, to get them through their own fears, and to customize it to where that patient's coming from. I don't really see us going anywhere. So if we do this right, all the painful parts of our job, or at least many of them, we can push off onto these poor machines who hopefully have no feelings. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Actually, I wanted to ask you a quick follow-up to something you, you mentioned about in terms of making decisions about next medications. Do you see AI playing a role in deciding which medications for which patients in the IBD space? Yes. I don't. Well, first, so the thing with IBD is, you know, it's my whole life. So I kind of split hairs, but we only have so many medications. I mean, it's not that complicated. But that being said, I think that with the current architecture of these machines and what the software is able to do in terms of not even understanding why there should be, you know, medication X next in the sequence, but just looking at the patterns and prescription patterns and what we as experts do. I don't see why I couldn't recapitulate that near perfectly. What it wouldn't be able to do is it it's going to do a poor job of explaining why to the patient. It's going to do a poor job of all of those non-clinical issues that factor into whether a patient actually gets the medicine in them. But as far as making decisions on what medicine next, totally. All right, great. Okay, so we'll pivot a bit. Your research team focuses on developing technologies that may improve how we measure clinical trial endpoints for IBD. Could you tell us a little bit more about your research and what challenges your team is currently working on addressing? Yeah, yeah. So one of the questions that you had had when we were talking about automated central reading for IBD and, and how AI was doing that, you were asking about, you know, the bias and error and, you know, are we just training AI on flawed systems? which we are. I wouldn't characterize them as necessarily flawed, but just as all things in life, there are pros and cons with our current scoring. So our lab is really interested in trying to leverage a lot of this artificial intelligence, particularly with computer vision methods, to try to come up with new ways to describe disease, more granular and specific ways to describe disease. For example, with CT and MR enterography, we build computer vision systems that look at the entire CT scan and interpret what the small bowel and colon look like, convert the images into quantitative numeric data. So we can, we can take an entire CT or MRE stack, we can have the machine automatically segment that image, meaning break it up into what's colon, what's ileum, what's rectum, what's all the anatomic parts, and then break it down even further into anatomic parts we understand, you know, where is mucosa, submucosa, serosa, extra intestinal space, et cetera, to the best ability that's possible. Some, you know, there, there's some limitations with the source images themselves, like it only sees so much. But once we have that, rather than try to use it to reproduce a conventional imaging scoring system or an endoscopic scoring, we try to use that inf information to make better scores. If we pivoted to endoscopy, rather than say, we can automatically calculate a Mayo score. Sure, that's very useful. That's practical. But as a clinician, when I'm doing the endoscopy, I'm not just looking at the Mayo score, but I'm looking at, well, how much of the colon is involved and, and what's the distribution of disease and 
there are patches where it's more or less severe and the types of ulceration I'm seeing are different in different patients. And all of us, we have that all in our head. And what's amazing about the human brain is that we can take all of that messy information and concatenate it into a decision and then compare it to our prior experience with that patient. The problem with it, and that's that's what all of us do in practice. That's what I do. You know, when I'm looking at ulcerative colitis, I can have four patients that have a Mayo 3, and they're all completely different. And some of them, I'm okay with their Mayo 3. Like, this is still not perfect, but a dramatic improvement, you're going to do fine. And then another patient who's also a Mayo 3 who has requires surgery. So these scores just don't have the granularity to match up with our clinical decision-making. So we try to use computer vision to break down different types of imaging studies, endoscopy, imaging, ultrasound, to get that information that you and I are using, but we just have a very hard time of describing. It'd be very hard for any of us to precisely write down exactly the rules and features we're using for different decisions, but a machine is very good at that. So we have we have computer vision routines that actually will track your position in the in the colon. We've presented this before at the DW and published some work on this, where we don't just tell you that you're a Mayo three if you have ulcerative colitis, but we'll tell you where you're a Mayo three and are you is it a short patch of it or a long patch of it, and are there other patches of disease elsewhere, and how does this compare to your prior colonoscopy? And we do the same thing with cross-sectional imaging as well. So the idea is you can use AI to replicate our current conventional scoring, but our lab is one of many that's trying to use the AI to actually enhance it, to make it better, to try to extract the information that all of us use, but have a difficult time quantifying. You could watch a colonoscopy video and you could write down all the times of every ulcer and where it occurred and how big it was. You could write that down. That would take you hours and you'd get tired and eventually you'd be wrong. And after one video, you'd quit. And I know this because I've done it, but machines don't get tired and they can do this all day. So these are the types of things that we're working on with in our group. That's so exciting. I mean, when you talk about time in terms of time savings after an endoscopy, I mean, that's everything to a busy gastroenterologist. So we also have one other thing I I forgot to mention, won't take too much time on this, but my passion project is natural language processing. So we have a lot of natural language processing tools specifically for IBD. So we read IBD notes and extract information from them. So we've got some publications, for example, on extraintestinal manifestations, which you know we don't really have great diagnosis codes for. It's kind of hard to track them. But we have some natural language processing tools that will read all of the notes in our electronic medical record, and they'll tell you what patients had which EIMs, and not just if they had them, but how severe were they? Are they getting better or worse or staying the same? And give you like that little bit of detail. And that small little piece is enough to give you like a snapshot of the patient. And then you can expand that to symptoms and medicines and all kinds of other things. And before you know it, you've got this like snapshot of all the patients in your practice. That's like, it's like a chart review done in an hour or two of 50,000 people. So it's pretty cool. Oh, wow. I mean, I think for... The general gastroenterologists listening here, they could really improve their IBD care using things like AI. I think that that's really the future. And I, I think the work you're doing is just so, so exciting. Yeah, the future for all of us is it, there's no bad news. It's just like the, the change that's coming. And I think the last 20 years, 
have been, or 30 years have been, we're going to solve our problems of the complexity of care by let's hire more doctors, more nurses, let's build more hospitals, let's do more endoscopy units. A, that's too expensive. And B, there's not enough of any of us, right? I don't, I don't know about your health system, but like, like we could hire, I don't know, hundreds of more doctors and nurses and staff here all the time. So we're going to have to manage more people. And the way that we're going to do it and still love this profession is by having these types of tools start doing some of the work for us. Even writing our notes, we actually have a demo. It doesn't quite work yet where we can watch the endoscopy and write the note for you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that old adage, work smarter, not harder, right? Yeah, there's some kind of like meme or some kind of quote that lots of people kind of claim as their own and then use a lot. But more or less what it says is in regards to people being afraid that, oh, AI is going to take my job. Not really. The doctors who use AI are going to replace the ones who don't. So everyone's just going to have to, they're going to need these tools to do well. Right. right. And if you fight it, well, I wish you luck. Right. Right. <laughs> How do you think technology and AI-driven tech in particular can help address the challenges we are currently facing in diversifying clinical study participation? And what do you think are the barriers to implementing those technological solutions? We could talk about the future, but let's talk about today. Today, there's lots of problems in trials. And one of them is that the healthcare centers that have the capabilities to run these trials often have a patient population that's already seen a lot of expertise. So it becomes very difficult to identify patients who actually need clinical trials because they're already being taken care of at some center of excellence or very experienced center. And so it's becoming harder to enroll and find. But perhaps the bigger kind of issue is most of people, at least in the United States, live far from centers of excellence, especially if they have a specialty condition. They'll drive hours. I know certainly in Michigan, I have many patients that will drive eight, 12 hours. Some of them come from the Upper Peninsula, which apparently 40% of Americans don't know there's a part of America, which is true. But the idea is most people are living far away from sophisticated resources, healthcare resources. In addition, some people live very close to those resources, but don't have access, frankly, because of financial barriers. So these AI technologies, I think, are doing two things. One, they can be deployed anywhere, anytime, cheaply and efficiently. So you can now reach out and geography is no longer a limitation. Not only the endoscopic and imaging technology I talked about, but also other non-AI technologies, but just increases like in new tech in the space, like home fecal calprotected monitoring and remote CRP monitoring, and even remote something as relatively simple as, you know, telemedicine and video chats. Those bundles of different technologies can be put together. So you can bring all the resources of your clinic anywhere you want geographically. So I think that by expanding the geographic area, removing that geographic boundary, we can now give access to so many more patients who would benefit from being able to be in a clinical trial if their condition requires it. But also it can help in drug development because 
Now you actually have the population that would benefit from these trials and it can help accelerate the new types of treatments. And as far as the people close, like close to centers of excellence, especially in urban areas who just don't have access or, or less trusting, a lot of these technologies substantially reduce the cost. So you don't need expensive central reading anymore. You don't need an extra colonoscopy anymore for a lot of these clinical trials. If you already had one done and it's being passively recorded in the background, you're done. You don't have to have another one. Here's the record right here. We know you're severe. Enter the study now. So it drops a lot of those barriers to studies. So I think that this kind of idea of the decentralized clinical trial is being enabled by technology and it's letting everyone, no matter who you are or what your resources are, have access. So I, I take it from what you're saying that you're a believer in decentralized clinical trials. Can you tell me more? Yeah. Well, the only reason for them to be centralized at this point is safety, which, of course, everybody cares about safety, especially in investigational drug trials. But when you look at some of these phase three trials and, and the anticipated adverse events, as well as the, the new remote monitoring capabilities that are possible, you don't need the large center anymore. For many, many studies. Now, this is going to be dependent on the kind of therapy that's that's being used and the, the intensity of the study. But for a lot of these different agents, you could more or less mail someone a kit of tech gear, a video camera, a laptop, their little home lab assay, and that's it. And if a person needs to be there physically, we can just fly them there or transport them there. Or, you know, most of these assessments that are done like a like a toxicity check or you know, LFTs or liver checks can be done by their local sponsoring kind of clinician. But absolutely, decentralization is, is the way to go. It increases access, it reduces costs, it increases the speed of drug development time, and patients like it. Right, right. Are there any barriers that you see to implementing these technological solutions? Trust, which is valid. That's number one. Number two, are regulatory agencies. They get this, but the government is slow because they do a lot of things and the technology is ready now, but it's no one's going to really do these types of kind of decentralized study designs broadly without regulators, specifically the FDA and CMS kind of getting behind and getting behind this and vetting it. So there's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done to kind of prove that these are safe and effective. But I, I think that everyone is aligned, including regulators in the government in terms of kind of making this happen for the reasons that we've discussed. There's a lot of social benefit for this and also benefit to industry. And then the other barrier, the other barrier that I see that I'm not so happy about is a lot of things in AI are seen as an opportunity, to be frank, an opportunity to go make money. I think this comes from looking at companies like Apple and Google and Facebook, and they were all started in their garage. They're software-based, software is cheap. These are amazing companies, amazing products. They go on to do great things. But I think people kind of can say and think of, you know, we're going to use this technology as a means to, um, we're just going to go make, make a lot of money. When in reality, I think that you can make a nice profit and have a nice company and, and do very well and grow something. And at the same time, try to address the problem of just how much things cost. And I think that there's a lot of room for profit and achievement and industry building, and at the same time, being more economically responsible. 
So if it costs $500 for a central, for a colonoscopy video to be centrally read for a clinical trial and the machine does it in three minutes, is it still worth $500? I don't know. Some people would argue it's worth whatever they'll pay for it. But I think that this is an important thing for us to be involved in because this technology can change our practice. But if we price it out of range, then no one will ever see it. Right. You bring up the issue of trust. How do you think that we can overcome that with patients who, like you say, are experiencing technology and all the costs that are associated with technology? How can we address that in the in the AI space? Give them choice. Don't force them to do it. And let all of our patients be free to try it or not try it. I think that if you recall the Cambridge Analytica situation of 20, I guess that was 2017 and 2018. 2018, yeah. Just about everybody knows this. And that moment made the public, including our patients, very sensitized to what are you doing with the information you know about me? Like, what are you going to do? And even if in medicine, everything we do is for their benefit or there's zero risk. There's there's only potential benefit for the inf- individual and society. I think people are just understandably suspicious of that. So I think that people have to have a choice of if they want to be involved in technology and let them kind of decide how much they want to do or not do. And then also full transparency. I think privacy is a huge, enormous issue. And and frankly, I think the United States is is very behind. I think we're behind because the more you increase privacy, you start to limit what industry can do. And you also limit research as well. My own research is dependent upon anonymized retrospective data, right? That's from the institution. And I don't know who these people are. So the, the thinking is there's very no little risk of using that. Well, be that as it may, maybe someone doesn't want me using their data. Maybe they feel they have the right to control that data. And if they don't feel that way, then it magnifies that lack of trust. And so I think it, it would go a very long way for us to come up with methods to enable that kind of transparency of if we're going to use your information, what are we going to do with it exactly? And give the patient total control over it. That's going to take some time to figure out how to do that. But the vast majority of our patients want to help. They're happy to share what we know about them, if it's going to help somebody else or maybe them, but everybody should have control. So transparency and giving people choice, I think are the ways to enable trust. Great. Great. So last final question for you. So we're just at the beginning of the AI revolution in healthcare. How do you think that this should be integrated into the practice of gastroenterology? And we, we talked a little bit about this earlier. And my main question to you is, what do you think the field will look like in 10 years? Yeah, maybe we can imagine what the average day of a gastroenterologist is like in 10 years. I haven't done this before, so we'll do this on the fly here. So the first half of your day is you're in endoscopy and your endoscopy is a little more patience than you're used than than you did 10 years ago. You're doing 12 colons in the morning, which wouldn't be possible today, at least for me, probably for a lot of other people, they're probably laughing at me, but um, that's all I could do. However, I'm just doing the colonoscopy and doing my procedure and talking to the patient. The note has been written for me. The 
decision-making for my IBD patients has already been made where it's where based on a computer vision review of the endoscopy and cross-referencing that with their medical record, they have decided that this patient's fine currently on their awesome Kinzumab therapy and they can continue. The recommendations for when they should come back for their, their next endoscopy have been made by the machine. And all of the follow-up actually after the procedure is going to be done automatically by our AI assistant who's going to chat with the patient via text and just make sure they're doing okay, they're feeling fine and not too bloated or anything, no bleeding after the procedure. That's all going to happen passively in the background. So I'm going to have lunch. I didn't write any notes because we don't really write notes anymore. I had to edit one of the 12 colonoscopy reports because the the AI misinterpreted something on the colonoscopy. And so I had to edit that and make a small change. But otherwise, I didn't do anything. And I actually went to lunch and I didn't used to have lunch, but now I do. And then I went to my clinic. And my clinic is four patients today. Now I'm reviewing 45 patients who are being automatically managed by our AI assist system. And the AI assist is the chat GPT 10, which is going out and has been monitoring patients with automated PROs and conversations about their symptoms and how they've been doing on their medications. And it provides me with an automated report and tells me about 50 patients and has decided that today I just need to review those 50 patients and just double check that our decision-making is what I would want to do. But I'm seeing four patients in clinic because our automated AI system has said these patients need to be seen. There's, there's a change that's unanticipated. Their responses to our questions in the labs have become divergent. And so something is changing and we're not sure what it is. So they'll need the human touch. So those four patients will come into me and it'll be about a 60 minute visit with each of those patients because it'll be pretty intensive. I won't write any notes because all of our offices are outfitted with microphones that listen to the conversation. They know who the patient is. They know who I am. And all the notes are written and reconstructed in the SOAP format. The prior authorizations are written for me. I don't write anything anymore. And then I go home and I go home and I don't know, play with my little one and take care of my chickens and maybe, maybe do a little bit of reading. And that's my day. And I really believe that's 10 years from now. And I don't think that that's any kind of fantasy. So we will be taking care of more patients, but we'll have less work to do. And we will be taking care of bigger populations because the AI is going to help us do that. Wow. I'm ready for it. All right. Well, ready or not, it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks to our guest, Dr. Ryan Stidham, and all of you for joining us on today's episode. Be sure to check out the other episodes in our series on diversity in IBD trials. This program is made possible by support from an educational grant from AbbVie Incorporated, Amgen, Bristol Myers Squibb Company, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Decatur Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, and a quality improvement grant from Pfizer Incorporated. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.